Destination Eat Drink is up next, but first, listen to this great other show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Howard Sudbury. Good for you. Oh, and I'm Steve Baskerville. On the next Back to You, we're going to talk about snoring on airplanes. We're going to find out what precipitation pie is. Persimmon. You just spoiled it. My goodness. That's on the next Back to You with... With a lot of luck. Back to You with Howard Sudbury and Steve Baskerville. Back to You, an Opie show. Only on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Great talk radio isn't dead. It just moved to a better place. Radiomisfits.com. Giving advice to drunk Cub fans. A drink that's really a joke. And the best pumpkin curry in London. This week, we're talking to Kira Cook, TV host of Islands Without Cars. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. I'm Brent Peterson. This week, we're talking to Kira Cook. Kira is the host of the PBS TV show Islands Without Cars. But first, a little bit of Destination Eat Drink housekeeping. If you've been listening to the podcast from the beginning, you might remember episode 10 when we visited Liverpool. And you might remember in that episode when I said that they were trying to open Strawberry Fields. Yes, the famous Strawberry Fields from the song Strawberry Fields Forever. John Lennon used to hang out there all the time. It was close to his childhood home. And for years, they've been talking about opening it as a park or as a museum for the public. And I may or may not have been a little bit skeptical and sarcastic when I talked about this in episode 10. And that's because last year when that episode aired, Strawberry Fields was still closed as it was 25 years prior when I first visited Liverpool. But now, serve me up the plate of crow, because Strawberry Fields is now open to the public. Congratulations to Julia Baird, John's half-sister. She spearheaded the effort to get Strawberry Fields opened, and now there's a museum and a cultural center at Strawberry Fields, and it is indeed open to the public. If you're thinking of making the pilgrimage to Liverpool, Beatle fan, check out episode 10 of Destination Eat Drink. I've got a ton of great Beatle-related places to visit and some great food to try while you're in Liverpool. You should also remember to subscribe to Destination Eat Drink. Get it automatically delivered every Friday to your phone, your tablet, or your computer by subscribing at Apple Podcasts, at Spotify, at Stitcher, or at RadioMisfits.com. This week on the show, we're talking to Kira Cook. Kira hosts Islands Without Cars, the show on PBS. And perhaps Kira was always destined to be a performer at age eight, she set up a table in her family's front yard a half block from Wrigley Field and charged drunken Cub fans 50 cents for her kid advice. A couple years later, at the ripe old age of 11, she was in the Hollywood blockbuster movie Matilda with Danny DeVito. Today, she travels the world to all kinds of different islands where cars are either banned or restricted and checks them out for the TV show Islands Without Cars. She's gone to a lot of great places, and we talk about a lot of them with Kira Cook on Destination Eat Drink. 
destination. Eat, drink. Kira, you were a child actress and appeared in the movie Matilda in the 90s. That must have been quite a shock for an 11-year-old all of a sudden being dropped into a Hollywood movie. What do you remember about that? Oh, my gosh. I mean, actually, that's one of my most crystal clear memories is being told I had the part because I was I auditioned for it six times in Chicago. And then they flew me out to L.A. to audition in person with Danny DeVito. And it was crazy. I mean, I chopped all my hair off so I could look like the Quince. Quincy Blake? That's not Quentin Blake. So I could look like the Quentin Blake illustration um, of Hortensia in the Roald Dahl book. Um, So I had this really stupid haircut and I flew out there with my mom and, you know, waited on this huge soundstage to meet Danny DeVito. It was, I knew it was down to me and one other girl. And um, right before I go in, I see Cameron Diaz across the room and Keanu Reeves. And this is right after Speed had come out. So of course I was obsessed. And uh, I go in, I do the audition with Danny DeVito. And at the end, he's like, so you want to meet Keanu Reeves? And I was like, I mean, (laughs) yeah, of course. So he took me over to Keanu and introduced me and like Keanu gave me this big hug. He was, you know, just as wonderful and friendly as everybody describes him as, especially to a blushing little 11 year old girl. And I flew home and, you know, it's like a waiting game then. And I remember I was talking to my fifth grade teacher, Mr. Sakamoto, and I was saying how badly I wanted this. And he was like, don't get your hopes up. I don't want you to get upset if you don't get it. You know, he's kind of playing the whatever voice of, I don't know, I don't want to say reason, but the other voice. And um, right then I heard a bunch of kids in the class gasp. And I turned around and my mom walked into the room with a big sign that said Hortensia on it. And everybody screamed and I screamed and I ran over to my mom and it was like a lot of, you know, hugging and crying and kissing. And yeah, then I flew out here and, you know, my mom gave up, you know, four months of her life to come out here with me uh, for her child actor. I missed the first couple months of sixth grade and I had to like fax my homework in and, um, It was incredible. It was one of the most fun experiences of my life. They put me up at the Oakwood Apartments in Venice, of course, or in Marina Del Rey, rather. And um, that's where all the child actors go when they uh, are brought over to L.A. Danny DeVito's the he appears in the movie, but he's also the director. Yeah. He's kind of famous for having salty language. (laughs) How was he around a bunch of 11 year old girls? Oh, he was like he, he was like just another friend. It was like he totally knew how to like just first of all, he I was taller than him when I was uh, in this movie. <laughs> so it was pretty easy to just accept him into the fold as another kid. Um, but he was so great with kids. I mean, obviously, I don't think you take this kind of a movie on unless like, like you you love ki- and he had, you know, kids of his own and love kid culture. And um, it's such a special story. And he totally embodied that horrible Mr. Wormwood role. But um, yeah, he was an amazing producer and director as well. And in between takes, he'd always invite me back to like hang out by the director's chair and, um, you know, watch what just happened um, on screen. And um, he was extremely friendly. Everybody loved him and everybody loved all the, the, you know, the crew that he really handpicked to make it such a special experience. You grew up in Chicago. So yeah. the logical question is Cubs or Sox? <laughs> well, uh, the real answer is do not care. But uh, I <laughs> I grew up a half a block away from Wrigley Field. I grew up on Sheffield and I had a Sox fan father and a mom who also could care less. So we never went to games ever, ever, ever. I think I've been to maybe two Cubs games in my whole life. And until I was 18, I lived literally a half a block away. Um, but 
I used to sell advice during the summer to all the Cubs fans because all the thousands of fans would come traipsing by my front door and my yard. And so I set up a little table when I was about eight and it said uh, advice 50 cents. What, what what kind of advice? Like, don't get your hopes up, Cubs fans. You're going to finish in the last <laughs> place anyway. <laughs> oh my God, you know, I must have given advice for Cubs, but those, those I don't remember. No. Um, I mean, fan advice, but no, it was mostly like, you know, they were all drunk. They're just, it's like yes. a drunk crowd. So it's summer, you know, Cubs fans. So it was like, Hey, you know, it was like 50 cents, right? But they'd always like throw down a, a dollar or $5 or $10 and they'd be like, how do I meet a guy? Or, uh, <laughs> or you know, like, should I, should I leave my job and whatever, become a professional baseball player? So, you know, it'd be questions like that. And so it's like more like they wanted to be entertained by what an eight-year-old could possibly say if you threw him a curveball. And, uh, you know, it was like a lot of, well, you know, this is how you do it. If I, if I were you, I'd, you know, if it's at a crowded place, you bump into them and, and you say, oh, I'm sorry. Hey, my name is Kira. What's your name? And then, you know, just really friendly, start up a conversation and then you'll probably like fall in love right away. So a lot of, <laughs> lot of that kind of advice. That's awesome. Do you, do you still get back to Chicago? Do you still have family there? I do. So my parents, um, divorced when I was a senior in high school and they sold this incredible house uh, that we had so close to the park, which I just saw on Zillow or something went for $2 million. It's insane. Um, it's a beautiful part of the city there, Wrigleyville. Oh my God. So beautiful <clears throat> and, and way different now than it was when I grew up. But they moved, my mom moved to Logan Square and my dad moved to Rogers Park. And that's where I would always like come home, you know, from college breaks too. I would just kind of split the time between. And now they've moved even further. Um, even though they both swore they'd never live in the suburbs, they, uh, my dad lives in Vernon Hills um, with his girlfriend, and my mom lives in Riverside. So that's a little bit closer. Um, but yeah, I go home. I go home probably twice a year, once in the summer and once in the uh, for Christmas or sometime around winter. We're going home for Christmas this year, which I'm very excited about because it'll be the first time um, home for the holidays with my kids. With grandma and grandpa. Exciting. With grandma and grandpa. Yeah. Last time I went, my uncle took me out for uh, Greek food, which was, mm. you know, went to Greek town and it was fantastic. Yes. Where are yes. some of your favorite places to go when you're in Chicago visiting? So I make a point every time, especially because my mom lived in Logan Square for so many years. She just moved to Riverside a year ago. So I make a point every time to go to Longman and Eagle and I get that pretzel with beer cheese that is just <laughs> stunning. Um, that's my my Chicago boyfriend, I call it. <laughs> pretzel with cheese. And uh, I love going to Lula Cafe. They have, I mean, just unbelievable brunches, but I love their peanut noodles. Um, Penny's Noodle Shop is like where I grew up. It was uh, a block away from my house growing up. So I make a point to go to any of those because there's a couple of them now. Um, I love their wonton soup and their um, like really good mustard broccoli. Um, so Penny's new. I mean, I do. I go to Shaw's every Christmas Eve with my dad. So we go to Shaw's Crab House and get oysters and fish. Um, and it's really festive there on Christmas Eve. Um, and that's your tradition. That's our tradition. Yeah. I Now that I have kids, I've like, like this summer, I flew alone, which was hell, um, with both of them <laughs> home to Chicago. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we did the Art Institute, we did the Millennium Park, you know, the aquarium, so that kind of stuff. So introducing them to all the wonderful museums that I grew up going to um, is really exciting for me now. What's your stance on uh, pizza in Chicago? Deep dish? Yes or no? No, a hard pass for me. That's really? a hard pass. And yeah. You, you grew up in Chicago. That's, I know. That's kind of rare. My dad doesn't like pizza, so we never ordered pizza. And when we did, when it was from Ofame, which I think is closed now, and it was really good thin sliced pizza. We ne literally never ordered deep dish. I had it like 
twice at my friend's house or something. I don't like it. It's too much. It's too much cheese. Yeah, it is a lot. Yeah. So you're in L.A. now. Do you get uh, good pizza in L.A.? Yes. I mean, I'm a pizza snob. Um, I like uh, like Moza is my favorite, obviously. Um, that is a very important pizza spot to me. Their Sage Fontina pizza is unbelievable. Um, and then on the east side, I go to Town, which is right by my house. Town pizza is extraordinarily good. Um, and that's all like super thin slice. There's also a new Roman style pizza um, that opened up by my house called Triple Beam. And that's really good pizza, too. So I like the kind of like fancy hipster pizza, unfortunately. <laughs> Um, let's, let's go back and talk about your history a little bit more because you have yeah. kind of an interesting backstory to me. You got your master's in modern literature in England. Uh, yes. wh where did you go to school in England for your master's? Uh, University College of London. Oh, in London. Nice. Yeah. yeah. And so literature, I'm sure you read a lot of James Joyce and he's yeah. kind of on the top of my head right now because we just got back from Dublin. Oh, wonderful. So How's fantastic. That? So fantastic. And we did a <laughs> lot of, of places. And we did a lot of the um, in fact, I'll be doing an episode on Dublin in, in a couple of weeks here. But we did a lot of the James Joyce sites, um, including going to Swenny's for a bar of lemony wax, which is wow. famous from Ulysses. But here's the funny thing. So you go to Dublin and everyone talks about James Joyce. And then you ask him, have you ever read Ulysses? And <laughs> I haven't met one person who said, yeah, I finished the whole, they'll, they'll always say, yeah, I started, I couldn't get through it. So <laughs> <laughs> did you read all of Ulysses? Did you get through that thing? Um, I did. I would have to say, I, if I were super honest with you, I'd say I sped read some of it because it was assigned reading in our course and I absolutely loved it. But we were given like, I don't know, a week to read it or something insane like that. So, and I was also working part time at the time. So, um, and it's long and it's dense. It's long. It's very dense. Um, I absolutely love it. And I, I, my husband actually used it to propose to me um, because really? I always, <laughs> I always told him that the last uh, pages of Ulysses are my favorite, uh, you know, my favorite possible excerpt in any book. And I love the sentiment behind it. It's all about a woman saying yes. And she's, you know, talking herself, talking to herself. It's like this great sort of stream of consciousness um, monologue. And the end is, yes, I will. Yes. And I just uh, talked about how I wanted that um, sort of credo as that I consider that my life credo. And uh, when we were in New York, um, he found this like first edition of Ulysses and he already had the ring with him. He knew he was going to propose. Um, and he took me to, we walked across the bridge, the Brooklyn bridge and went to this beautiful part of the park in Brooklyn. And he gave me this book because I, I, he's like, got, he sort of got down. No, we were sitting down on a bench and I was like, I feel like this is a big moment that's about to happen. But he handed me a book <laughs> and I was like, okay. And he's like, would you read this out loud? And, you know, he had underlined the last passage and I read it out loud and there was a post-it note that he had covered some writing. So he said, okay, now take this off. And it said, um, you know, to all the yeses between now and forever, will you marry me? And uh, then he got down on one knee and proposed. <laughs> wow. So yeah. he he wins. He wins the proposal sweepstakes. He wins. He won. Yeah. Yeah. Just cue so much weeping. Um, <laughs> and then we walked to this incredible place called the River Cafe, which is like lobster and steak right on the river looking over Manhattan. It was very romantic and wonderful. And I cried through the entire meal. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I have a very strong, you know, affinity for uh, Ulysses and Joyce. And I love the Dubliners. And it's even more impressive knowing that he wrote it from Italy. He wasn't even in the city at the time. Right. It's 
So he didn't spend a lot of the a lot of the stuff he wrote about Dublin. He wasn't even in Dublin at the time. He didn't spend a lot of his adult life in Dublin, really. Yeah, I, yeah. I think he was um, exiled actually. So he was basically live. He wasn't allowed to re-enter the city, um, and he knew it all from memory, which is incredible. So you're a college student in a graduate student in London. Where yeah. were some of the places that you used to hang out in London that you liked? Oh man, so I was I began living in Camden. Um, I lived in some really terrible uh, dorms um, in Camden. And uh, that was so miserable that I finally um, like connected with this girl because I was uh, assisting at a publishing house. So I, I was like, it's a small publishing company and I was their editorial assistant. And one of their other assistants was like, well, we have a room in our apartment that's opening up. And that was in Shoreditch, which is like very cool east side of London. And I checked it out and it was like unbelievable. It was like a little mini model UN in the house, you know, like a French couple, um, a Taiwanese girl, uh, a British cup girl, one American girl. I forgot where the other ones were from. There's was people from all over the place, Swiss, a Swiss couple. And um, there was like seven or eight of us living in this tiny apartment. <laughs> but um, it was it was amazing because I walked out my door and I had the best like new hippest new restaurants and bars at my doorstep. So um, I literally did live above a bar. Um, Excellent. So where did I go? I used to love. Um, oh my god! I mean, I just spent a lot of time in pubs with my classmates after <laughs> after school. Of course. Um, there's a Thai restaurant called Busaba Itai that had the most incredible pumpkin curry that I would go and amazing octopus. And I'd go there probably once every couple weeks. I was big into the market. So I'd love to do like the Brick Lane market and the Spitalfields and the weekend markets were right by my house. And so I would love to go get Indian food nearby. And there's um, two dueling 24 hour bagel shops um, <laughs> so that you could get a bagel with uh, lox and cream cheese for like a pound 50. Um, so I went there a lot because I was very broke. Bargain, right? Yeah. Big bargain. We're talking with Kira Cook. She is the host of Violence Without Cars. The second season is showing right now on PBS. And Kira, I love I love this show, Islands Without Cars, because there's so many travel shows out there where it's like, okay, we're visiting the Eiffel Tower again. Yeah. Yeah. And you guys do something so different. So explain the idea behind Islands Without Cars and how you got involved with the show. Our executive producer, Melissa Sage Fadum, um, is a big proponent of the arts in Chicago, and she runs this foundation called the Sage Foundation, and she funds all kinds of incredible arts foundations. Um, she's you know big into the CSO, uh, Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and the Art Institute of Chicago, and a lot of schools to do with art, and she funds documentaries. Um, and she grew up in Michigan, and Mackinac Island was really important to her. She kind of grew up going there and took her kids there going while they were growing up, and she had a really strong affinity for this place. And so she wanted to do a, a documentary on it, especially featuring, you know, the Grand Hotel, which is where she's, she's always stayed. And it's this like icon of Mackinac Island. And um, she, I don't remember how, but she, so she and my mom, my mom is a filmmaker in Chicago and she has always been, they've kind of always been working together since the eighties. I think the first thing they worked on together was about the HIV virus. Um, they then continued to work together. And so Melissa's idea was let's do a show on Mackinac Island. So they did. And, uh, they did kind of like a profile on the Island. And after they finished it, they had such a great time with it. They were like, well, wouldn't this be great? It was Melissa's idea. She said, wouldn't it be great if we did this as a series, but islands around the world that don't allow cars like this? It's just such a special story that these islands have just by simply eliminating modern transport. They are all so unique and so different from other places you could ever go. So 
My mom was like, great idea. Let's look into that. And then they found, you know, they did some research and found that there were plenty of them. And they were sort of like, okay, well, if it's a series, we need a host. Um, and I grew up acting, obviously. And at the time, I was getting my master's in London. And they asked if I would, you know, be interested in hosting the pilot. And obviously, the answer is yes. <laughs> and so um, <laughs> we shot our first two episodes together, actually. We went to Sark was the first episode. And uh, the second one was Hydra off of Greece. It was great. And PBS liked it. And they were like, yeah, we'll definitely air this. And so, you know, you need six episodes to make a season. And so we went on and it's been kind of slow. We've done one episode, one or two episodes a year for the last 11 years. And now we're in our third season. <laughs> and uh, the second season is airing now on Create and PBS. And yeah, that's kind of how I was brought aboard. Let's talk briefly about Mackinac Island because um, I grew up in Chicago, I think I mentioned, and yeah. our, our parents used to take us, uh, me and my two brothers, up to northern Michigan every year for two weeks um, to this place called Crystal Lake, which is in oh, yeah. northwest Michigan. Yeah, yeah. So we would go all around, you know, take the car and go all around that nor area of northern Michigan, Traverse City, up into the UP, and of course we would go to Mackinac Island. Yeah. And when my girlfriend and I started dating, I wanted to show her. So we went on a vacation in northern Michigan in the UP. And we go to Mackinac Island, of course. And the day we get there happens to be the day that they're ending the Chicago to Mackinac sailboat race. They do oh. it, I think, every year, every other year. They race uh, sailboats from Chicago to Mackinac Island. Mm. And the cool part was... When they cross the finish line at Mackinac Island, they fire this cannon. Well, yeah. So you're sitting there and all of a sudden, boom. And, you know, maybe a couple of cocktails on the beach and watching these uh, boats finish. And then the sailors come ashore and they, they're all ready to party. And it's just so much fun to do that. Yeah. What, what do you remember about uh, Mackinac Island? So that was, I think we went there three years ago. Um, and... It was the first American island we had done. We had, um, and it was in our kind of the middle of our second season. So we'd already done many islands and I was expecting an American island to be a little boring by comparison. And I actually was very delighted by it, I have to say. I mean, we stayed at the Grand Hotel, which is this opulent, fascinating, highly decorated, specifically decorated, like each room has a different theme um, and each um, the dining room is massive. And that, I mean, I can't, I don't even know how many rooms they have. I'm guessing like 400 or something. I mean, it's an enormous hotel with this huge wraparound porch and you have to dress up if you want to drink on the porch. And it, the whole idea is really like, they want you to feel as though you are in another time. They don't want you to feel like, you know, you had to take a car and a ferry and a horse to get here and you're tired or whatever. It's like, they want you to feel like, okay, you've done so much work to come to this like really small pocket of the world. Like now, now it's 1950, uh, relax. <laughs> and, um, they nail it, you know, the whole, that they've got a stunning pool that Esther Williams shot a beautiful film in. Um, there's this like festival that they have once a year somewhere in time fest. That's like <laughs> harkens back to this Christopher Reeve, Jane Seymour movie that people are obsessed with. And they literally come every year and dress up in Victorian garb and, uh, right like reenact the movie. But yeah, I mean, there's like that cute little town that's lined with fudge shops. And, you know, I, I think we get a very unique view of it because we're not just a tourist coming to these islands. We interview the people that make the island move. So I'm, I'm, I'm always leaving with something like a really extraordinary feeling of like an intimacy with a place because we 
talked to the fudge makers and their their fathers and their grandfathers started this company and this is how we make fudge and then I get to make fudge with them. It is different than the sort of, um, you know, layman tourist coming to a town and buying fudge and leaving. You know, we really, it's like heavy research. So um, I can't help but fall in love with each of these places because you get to hear the real, true, incredible stories behind behind them. So I really, I had a lovely time. I love, I love, what's it called? Reenactment history. That's like, I'm a, I'm a nerd for reenactment history and they have a huge thing where they all dress in colonial garb and there's the soldiers and there's like really great, like you go into their old barracks and you see all their, there's a great, I don't know if it was a temporary exhibit, but, um, exhibit about all the diseases that inflicted these poor soldiers living in these squalid conditions for years and years. Um, so that kind of stuff I'm really into. Have you seen the Nick? No. Oh my God, please watch it. It's so good. It's on, cinema or whatever. I mean, it's now it's, it's off of it, but it's uh Steven Soderbergh filmed, um, directed it and wrote it. And it's about this doctor in 1900 New York, basically the beginning of like real medical breakthroughs. It's so good. And he's an addicted to opium. So please. And heroin. Excellent. Yeah. Please watch it. And is this a, a movie or a series? <laughs> a series. Yeah. Okay. You can cut I'll look this out. That I just feel like for your personal uh, enjoyment. <laughs> I, I shall. <laughs> um, one of the islands that you visit in the second season is called Hel- Helgoland. I think that's mm-hmm. how you say it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an island in the North Sea. It's a German island. But I was watching the episode that you did with this, and the history of this place is so interesting. Tell me, the, tell the story of this island called uh, Helgoland. It's um, this, basically this red rock in the North Sea between Germany and Denmark. And you have to take a nauseating boat ride that's uh, like four hours. Uh, I, everybody was ashen by the time we arrived. I mean, it's like, it's the hard North Sea and we're on a, like a protected huge boat. Um, not even like what, the, I can't even imagine the ships that had to go there back in the day. But um really rough seas. (laughs) You arrive after this very long boat journey and you're truly in the middle of nowhere. And it's this like huge red rock that rises out of the sea and you get off the ferry and you walk over to this town. And basically the whole island has been reconstructed because it was bombed in the fifties. So people were living there, you know, life was going along. Germans were living there. And then it was occupied by the Nazis and I think the late war and it kind of kept changing hands back and forth and it was used as a sort of tactical spot. And basically at the end of the war, the British used all of their excess bombs to like on Helgoland. And so they flew over Helgoland and released something like, it was like a record breaking number of, of bombs. Um, and like a third of the Island was just completely destroyed and fell into the sea and not to mention the town and all the buildings. And it was a completely evacuated by this point. So there was, uh, nobody was harmed, but there's a huge bunker underneath the Island because for years, you know, they would have to go under there for these drills and live under there for days at a time. Sometimes it was interesting because we went out on a lobster fishing adventure and the lobster fishermen told us that like even the lobster population is still rebuilding from the bombing in the 50s. You know, this pop, all the populations of, uh, of fish were decimated and lobsters were decimated. And that's a really big income for the island. Um, it was their industry. It was lobster fishing. So they really had to completely rebuild. And they did. Like they came back in and these people were determined to still make Helgoland their home. And so they all came back and they 
did the work and rebuilt this island. And now it's everything. That's why everything is sort of very new and modern on the island because it's all from the 50s. And it's stunning. I mean, there's a lower land and an upper land. And the lower land is kind of where all the commerce is and industry and shops and restaurants. And then you go to the upper land and uh, like a bird sanctuary. It's like this interesting stopover for all these species of birds. So it's uh, there's, you know, tons of biologists that live there and study these uh, species. There's this thing, this huge rock called the Langa Ana, Tall Ana. It's it's stunning. It's like stark and beautiful up there. Um, and there's, you know, sheep roaming around. And it's it's kind of amazing. It's, it's a lot of types of geography and um, biology on one very small island. It's amazing to me seeing this on the show. The village looks like a beautiful, colorful little German village. And then you think, this was completely rubble. After World War II, this was completely rubble. And they're out in the middle of nowhere. How did they rebuild this whole thing? And then (laughs) you see these, I, I mean... To call them uh, holes in the ground, I mean, they're cra- they're literally craters where these bombs were dropped yeah. uh, by the British. It's it's a stark contrast between these two parts of this one little island. Yeah, yeah. It's like we want to honor our past and and be a cheerful little fishing village like we once were, but there's a, like a serious uh, dark side of our history. And there's a woman named Marin Lohmeyer who travels across the beaches every morning. She takes her dog down to the beach and she collects and she still finds, um, you know, plates and uh, sometimes Nazi insignia on these plates and ceramics that have washed up to shore. Um, and you know, little dolls, uh, ceramic dolls and basically like rubble from the, that was destroyed, you know, the lives that were destroyed, um, in these bombings and she makes art out of it. So it's like, she's kind of giving a new life to what, uh, this Island went through. On this uh, show, you try a local drink called Eergrog. Eergrog, yeah. Eergrog. Thank you. (laughs) And, uh, describe, tell us what that is and, how was it? Because in the show, like you, you take a sip and then you make a face. So I'm not certain how much you liked it or didn't um, like it. It's an intense flavor. It's rum with, well, when we first got to the island, I was like, so what's this local drink? And they were like, well, it's pigeon, <clears throat> pigeon eggs. Uh, you have to use a specific uh, Helgeland pigeon egg. And I was like, wait, what? And they, you know, played, I'm very gullible. So, and my job is to ask questions <laughs> anyway, and, you know, typically believe the stories that people say. They, uh, you know, uh, assented on that lie. But uh, essentially it's egg whites uh, frothed up with rum and hot water and I believe some honey. Um, it, it, or maybe it was whiskey, honestly. Gosh, I'm sorry. This was a year ago now. So <laughs> I've had a lot of drinks since then. I don't really exactly remember, <laughs> but it's I'm I think it's rum. I think it's rum. So Arhagog is rum, egg whites, hot water, and I believe some kind of a s- sweetener. If it was honey or maybe some kind of um whatever, one of those other liqueur. Um, and it was very disgusting. Um, the locals do not drink it. <laughs> <laughs> this is just a joke they're playing it's on a, tourists. It's absolutely then. a joke they play on tourists. It's like, you know, every island needs like the specialty drink. And, you know, they advertise it. But I, I looked around and nobody was drinking. Everybody was drinking beer or whiskey. And um, I, I think... It would, you know, if I had like nursed it and it was like a freezing day, yeah, I could have put one of those away, maybe two, and you would have been very drunk because it was very strong. But um, it's not not my style of drink, I'll say. I'm jealous about all the places that you've gone that I haven't been to, <laughs> Kira. But the one place that I'm really jealous about is uh, Giethoorn in the Netherlands, Oof, yeah, because 
they have a place that's a, a, a Mecca, a pilgrimage restaurant for foodies called uh, D. Lindenhof, uh, one of the world's great restaurants, two Michelin stars. Yeah. What was it like going there? What did you have? And was it one of those uh, fantastic meals that you'll always remember? Absolutely. Yeah. I will never forget that meal. Um, I love food so much. It's so important to me. <laughs> and uh, I love that we really tell the story of food on this show. Um, I think it's just a window into a culture in such a beautiful way. And this was the story of the Netherlands in a meal. I mean, the chef Martin gave us this wonderful tour of his kitchen and took his time with us and was so excited about his food. And just across the road, he has this enormous garden where he raises all of the herbs and flowers and produce that he uses in his meals. And he has this great beautiful chicken coop and all these friendly chickens and he, you know, raises these eggs. Well, he doesn't raise the eggs, but he, you know, picks them up and takes them over to his kitchen. And uh <laughs> he I remember I went for a run. I don't typically exercise on these jobs because it's a lot of walking and I'm tired at the end of the day. But I I remember wanting to be starving for this meal. So I went on a long run before the meal. So I would like be really ready <laughs> to eat a lot. And uh, it worked because I was you brought you brought your you brought your big pants with you. And <laughs> exactly. It was only elastic that night. And um you know, we had this unbelievable bottle of wine. So we, so we, you know, took a tour of the kitchen. We interviewed him. I, a lot of that didn't make it in just because there's not time. Um, unfortunately, there's just not never enough time to tell all these stories that we actually do film, but that don't make it in. Anyway, we, I'm pretty sure we cooked something together and then we sat down for this, I mean, multi-course meal in between which there's all these, you know, little plates, little excitements that he would just bring for like a palate adventure. And I will never forget the very first thing on that meal was a cherry tomato that he grew across the street that he caramelized and flash fried as though it were a beignet. Um, it was like a cherry wow. beignet, but caramelized. And then he served it with, I believe it was fennel sorbet, um, something again, he made there. Then it was like all supposed to be one bite. You know, you take the spoon, scoop it up one bite. And I mean, it was like, you know, it's a combination of flavors heretofore unexperienced by, I would dare to say everybody in the world. <laughs> and um, <laughs> it was, it was unbelievable. And I'll never forget. That was like my favorite bite of food. Somebody asked me at dinner the other night, they're like, what's the favorite thing you've ever eaten? And I was like, wow, randomly, first thing that comes to mind is this blistered cherry tomato beignet with anise or fennel sorbet. Uh, oh, man. So yeah, that was an extraordinary meal. Um, really, really rich in this beautiful, you know, green you know, surrounded by greenery, this like lovely garden of uh, of a hotel that's right on the canal. And, you know, his son took us on a boat ride through the canal. It was really special. <laughs> I'm very lucky. I will say that I'm very <laughs> lucky. And I'm lucky that I get to experience this and bring these stories to people that might not be able to go. So I love that people are watching and enjoying this show because these are such special places in the world. And I'm so thankful that I get to experience them. You mentioned, Kira, that you're working on season three right now. Yeah. Any little tidbits you want to give us about any places you might be visiting? Of course, yes. So we have filmed two episodes so far of season three. Uh, we've been to Fire Island off of New York. Okay, great. Which was such an interesting story. I, I loved the story that we're telling on this place. And then um, we just got back from Catalina Island off of California. And Okay, good. I was going to ask you, I was yeah, going to say, you guys got to go to Catalina Catalina for years. And I was like, well, 
well, I mean, there's so many more exciting places in the world. But this year we were like, well, let's do some American uh, islands. And to me, it was like one of these things that it's so it's so close. So I've just never even bothered going like, you know, you're in traffic so much of the time in L.A. And it's such a pain to get anywhere that it's like, well, if I'm going to go somewhere, I'm not going to go an hour off of the coast. I'm going to go, you know, to I'm going to go to Helgoland. I'm going to go to Helgoland. Yeah. I'm going to take a four hour (laughs) nauseating ride. Plus, I did that ride with a toddler, I will say. I brought my son. And so he was a oh. nightmare on that ferry. <laughs> did, did he make it through okay, though? He didn't I mean, feel gosh. any. And he didn't experience any seasickness. He's never had that or any kind of like uh, airplane, you know, ear issues. He's just very irritating uh, on small, confined places. <laughs> He's just a ball <laughs> of energy. So while wanting to throw up, I had to go up and down the stairs with him about 7,000 times. So that was fun. Oh, it's a good distraction. Um, so anyway, we went to Catalina a couple weeks ago. And that was another just fantastic place with such incredible history. So that will be the first couple episodes of season three. And right now we're trying to figure out where we're going next year. We might be revisiting um, Greece. Our very first episode was Hydra. Uh, Did you see that one, that episode? Yes, I did. And I I loved it with all the uh, with all the folks who were kind (laughs) of kind of given up and said, you know what, I'm going to just live here now. And it's just Fantastic. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, my husband and I are talking about that right now. It's like, do we want to live here or do we want to go somewhere that has no cars? And it's been extraordinarily inspirational to me doing this series and what it's like to watch people that like did grow up in a place with cars and a fast pace of life and say, you know what? I don't want this anymore. Um, so we're 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 gonna basically put our foot in the waters of Amsterdam next year and we're going to um oh. we're going to move there for 2 months at the end of the summer and then if we like it I think we're going to try and move there for a year and see how it goes because I love we both loved it there so much and it's such a great place for kids um and I love the idea of not ever getting in a car again <laughs> that was my first european trip 25 years ago yeah. was to go to amsterdam and I just loved it and now it's man, I want to go back to the Netherlands so bad, but it's become one of those things where there's so many places that I haven't even set foot in. I want to go there. And it's like, I don't know if I want to go back to a place that I've kind of already been to, but it's been 25 years, so I should go back. And A lot has changed. I know my dad said the same thing when I went back, I think for the second or third time to Amsterdam. He was like, why are you going there again? There's other places. It was like, you don't understand. It's so special. And it is really changing. I mean, I feel like the food culture is kind of really happening in Amsterdam now, whereas... Ten years ago, when I first went, there was nothing interesting happening food-wise. The only good thing we had was um, the Indonesian, yeah, great Indonesian, Indonesian food is, there. That was it. But yeah, there's this place called Hummus Brothers or Sir Hummus that's uh, like popping up all over Amsterdam. It's like the most unbelievable hummus I've ever had in my life. Hummus meals, you know, meals built around hummus. So, um, yeah, we're we're gonna try and see what that's like because I love the idea of raising a family on bicycle, you know, and getting places on bicycle like yes. all these people do on these shows. And I think that'd be a nice full circle moment for my life is to host the show and then move somewhere that, you know, doesn't have cars. Kira Cook, thank you so much for being on Destination Eat Drink and sharing with us about Islands Without Cars. I love the show. I'm looking forward to seeing the rest of the episodes wow, thanks so much, of season friend. two. And then season three, when it comes out next year, I'm really, we'll uh, definitely promote that when it comes out on, uh, on PBS next Please year. Please do. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's great to talk to you. Okay. That's Kira Cook. 
Islands Without Cars second season is currently airing on PBS and Create TV. Check your listings for showtimes. Kira just seems like the kind of person who's having a good time no matter what. It doesn't matter if she's on a boat that's rocking back and forth and making her stomach do backflips. She's still having a good time. Next week, we'll be in Mumbai, India. It's going to be quite an adventure, so don't miss that one. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by Ed Silla and the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. I will see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. 